Amen. Would you take out your handout sheet that is in your bulletin as we begin today? And you're also going to need to have a Bible. So Brian and Eli are going to be handing out Bibles to you. So please raise your hand if you need a Bible. We'll bring one right to where you're at. Just make sure you have your Bible at the ready. We're going to be studying the book of Amos this morning. Uh, it's a six-part series that we're going to be going through. In part one, uh, I entitled Wade and Found Wanting When God Judges Israel's Neighboring Nations. But I want to begin with a thought from a book called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. He said this, and I thought it was kind of an interesting thing to, to dwell on. Once again, more kind of a food for thought this morning. He said this, It is good for all men to have clear views of the Lord Jesus Christ's power. Let the sinner know that the merciful Savior, to whom he is urged to flee, and in whom he is invited to trust, is nothing less than the Almighty, and has power over all flesh to give eternal life. I believe that in our world today, we slide to one of two sides of the spectrum. We polarize on one side or the other. Either we believe that God is massive, majestic, and awe-inspiring, but distant, or we believe that he's weak and near. I believe that Satan would rather have you on either side, because imagine this. If you believe, and many religions believe this, many faiths believe this, many um, denominations believe that God is super powerful, majestic, he's amazing, he's scary, there's a holy fear, but he wants nothing to do with human beings, he wants nothing to do with me, and they keep him at arm's length. Do you understand that that pathway leads to hell? On the other side, you got everybody that goes, man, Jesus is a really, really nice guy. He's, you know, he's a buddy kind of guy and he's really friendly and he's the greatest teacher that ever lived. And but he's not my savior. You understand that leads to hell, too. I think Satan would rather have you on one of those two polar opposites rather than be in the middle. In the middle is where Jesus is, where salvation is, where he is still the almighty. He is still God who became incarnate and came down here, nothing was made without Him and through Him. He is that amazing. He's that scary to be around, and yet He calls us friend and draws near and wants a personal relationship. We can't seem to allow that tension to remain. We polarize. We have to keep running. We either go, wow, you're big, and we back up, or we go, wow, you're small, and I can control you, and we get near. Do you understand the problem there? We must be somewhere in the middle of seeing Jesus as he is. Amen? Amen. Now then, uh, if you would like to, please turn to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 1, verse 1. It's page 647 in your Bibles that were handed to you. But if you're trying to find it, it's really tiny. It's in the second half of the Old Testament. If you hit Daniel, you're almost there. All right? So look for Daniel and then scoot Three books to the right, and you'll find it. They're all real tiny little books. It goes Hosea, Joel, Amos. If you hit Obadiah, you went too far. Uh, but Amos chapter 1, verse 1, page 647 is where we're going to be this morning. But let's get a couple things straight. Whenever we open up a brand new book in Scripture, we need to have some background information. And so let me share that with you now. The book is obviously by a guy named Amos, right? Okay, for all the rocket scientists that are here, that's pretty obvious. I get that. 
Now, who is Amos? We actually don't know who this guy is other than who he reveals himself to be. But there's one thing that sticks out that's super important to know about this guy. And you've got to keep this in your mind. He's an average Joe. He's your everyman. He's the normal guy. Why? Because guys like Elijah or Jeremiah, they were prophets. And they were kind of prophets. You know, Jonah was a prophet by trade. They kind of did that for a living. They were known for being in full-time ministry. They may have done other side jobs to help make ends meet, but they were primarily prophets. Not this guy. As a matter of fact, when they go up to him and they say, you irritate me, go do your prophesying somewhere else. You're not a prophet that's wanted here. He stops him and he goes, hold on a second. I'm not a prophet at all. I may prophesy. I'm a regular guy. I'm a shepherd. He's a shepherd. And then he says, and I take care of sycamore fig trees. So he's farmer guy. Do you understand? He's not fancy. He doesn't have a traditional ministry behind him. He's not the son of a prophet. He doesn't have the whole subculture. He's just one guy, average ordinary guy doing the shepherd's work, doing the farming work. And God comes and visits him and said, you change the nation. Gives him a message. Doesn't suggest he's ever had a message from God before or after. And he's told to go up against kings and begin to tell them a message of judgment from the Lord. It's got to be tough. The other significant thing is that he's a guy that lives in the south and he's preaching to the north. That doesn't make him very popular. They didn't like each other. Okay, so they didn't accept his message real well. So, other than that, let's talk about the date when this stuff happened. If you guys remember, B.C. counts down like a V and A.D. counts up. He ministered B.C. 760 to 750. So, basically, it's possible this was delivered over a 10-year period. We always assume that because we can read it in a day, it was delivered in a day. That's not true. There could be a whole long time in between. Usually, what a prophet had to do is he'd go out and he'd go... God's angry with all of you. You're all going to burn. All right. I got to go home now. <laughs> and then they, then they go home and they have to wait around and nobody does anything. And then they have to come back out with the same message. And God's angry with you and you're all going to burn. Good night now. You know, that's the idea of how they would do their living. It was over a period of time. Okay. It wasn't a real short one hit wonder kind of thing. It was addressed to all of Israel. And the reason that we're at this place or the reason for him writing this The reason for God giving him this message is because Israel was, as far as prosperity goes, as far as wealth goes, they were at almost an all-time high. And the future looked bright economically. As a matter of fact, 40 years prior to Amos preaching, a guy by the name of Elisha, you guys remember Elijah and Elisha, the famous prophets? Elisha was only 40 years ago. He said that Israel was on an upswing and that they were going to see all kinds of blessings. So Israel was like, great, last prophet that showed up, man, he said things were going well. Jonah, more recently, because they're almost contemporaries, the guy that got swallowed by the big fish, you remember him? More recently, he said that the future looked bright and they were going to see such an amazing glory come upon Israel that it was going to be like the time of David. So everyone's going, man... My stocks are doing great. Everything looks awesome. Everything's going up and to the right. And the whole future looks good. We're locked in. We're feeling great at church. Everybody looks good. Everything's going to be perfect. Problem is, internally, no one had any connection with God. And they were completely spiritually dead and had walked away from the Lord in their hearts. It's weird that the more wealthy and affluent a nation becomes, the more spiritually empty they become. Everything looked good outside. 
and everything was useless on the inside to such a degree that God was sick and tired of it and he was about to wipe them out. He was about to do the unheard of, the impossible. What was that? He was going to take his chosen people, crush them and rip them out of their land. Now, nobody thought that was going to happen. Now, here's the other problem with being a prophet. When you say it, it sure be neat if God followed it right up with something, right? As a matter of fact, if you do the calculations, they don't get wiped off the map for 38 more years. So he has to go, the end is near. <laughs> Nothing ever happened. He's totally done with his ministry and they're all still fine. Okay. 38 years later, six more kings afterwards and nothing's happening. But you could see the signs. A storm was brewing and it was moving westward, known as the Assyrian Empire. God had all this stuff in the works. The way this book begins is that Amos prophesies against the six surrounding nations around Israel. Their enemies, the bad guys, the pagan nations. But almost like, as one commentator said, a noose was being drawn around the neck of Israel. It starts out, and they start talking about the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Philistines. And so Israel's like, yeah, wipe them off the face of the earth. Yeah, go get them, God. And all of a sudden it starts getting nearer and nearer and nearer. And it tightens around, and all of a sudden Amos says, but you're worse than all of them. Boom, for the whole rest of the book, he starts addressing Israel. And they're like, "Uh uh-oh, I don't like this guy anymore. I thought I liked him before. Now I don't like him at all. But our whole message today is about the surrounding six nations. As God, one by one, says, you're going down, you're going down, you're going down. I'm going to take you all down through the Assyrian Empire. And he, he tells them exactly why, what the problem is. So you've got to ask yourself, why does God care about pagan nations? Why would he have a prophet, a Jewish prophet, go out to the pagan nations and say, God doesn't like what you're doing? They would say, who cares? I don't like God. The word for sins that are going to be used for judging them is the word rebellion. Do you understand that God owns this world? Do you understand that God is the king over all creation? And even when someone who doesn't believe in God, whether you believe in him or not, you're still violating his covenants. And he does not take that sitting down. He takes it very personally. And how dare you? Go up against me. There are rules and they're written on your heart about how you need to treat other human beings. And you may not be the chosen people, but you better listen to my law. Otherwise, I'm coming in with judgment. That's where we pick it up. But here's what's interesting. All of the talk, all the reason God's angry is about bad guys being mean to other bad guys. And you go... Who cares? Just let them all fight each other and die. What does it matter? Because of the fill in the blank in front of you, I need you to see this. If you want to make it personal, this is how you make it personal. God cares how you treat your enemies. You're going to assume in your Christianity that you're fine with God talking about how to treat your neighbor, how to treat the down and out, how to treat the disenfranchised, how to treat the poor. But when God starts talking to you on how to treat your enemies... All bets are off. You start going, wait a second. I don't want you to tell me, God, they're evil people. They're horrible people. That's why they're my enemy. They completely hurt me. They damaged me. They destroyed me. And God goes, I know. I didn't say what they're doing is right. 
I said, why are you acting the way you're acting? When the smoke clears, I'm just looking on your side of the ledger. How are you acting? I know how they're acting and they will be held accountable. But how are you acting? That matters to God. In our year of world impact, guess who God's going to put on your list of outreach? Your enemy. I don't know what stereotypical group you've got a problem with, but guess what? They're going to be on your list of outreach. I don't know who you hate, but somehow they're going to drop on your list of outreach. And you're going to resist it with everything in your heart. As a matter of fact, Jesus came on the scene and he said, you've heard that it's wrong to murder, right? Let me tell you that your heart matters just as much. If you hate someone in your heart, you might as well have murdered them on the outside. I want to tell you this. Christians are excellent at going underground. We will not be hateful towards people that are our enemies outwardly. But we will kill them over and over and over in our heart. And no one has to know. But guess who's watching? God. And He keeps an account. Amos chapter 1 verse 1. We'll just read verses 1 and 2. And then a a bit of three, and then we'll pray for the word this morning and tear it apart. It begins like this. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the tops of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we are about to engage with your word, a word that is not only difficult to understand, but far more difficult to do. But we believe, Lord, by the power of your spirit that you will enable us to do what you call us to do. Therefore, if you've asked us to love our enemies, you'll give us the power to do so. Father, we're not ready to be kind to our enemies, and yet you tell us to move forward. We're asking for your grace, your wisdom, your discernment as we study this difficult topic. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Tekoa is a small town in southern Israel. It's about six miles out of Bethlehem, 11 miles from Jerusalem. Little tiny place. What Amos saw, meaning it's possible God brought it to him in a vision. What he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake. What earthquake? Well, they had a bunch of earthquakes, so scholars don't know for sure. The Jewish historian Josephus believes that when King Uzziah was turned leprous by God for a violation of priestly duties, that an earthquake hit at the same time, and that's the earthquake they're talking about. Is that true? I don't know. But we do know the date relative to what comes next. When Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. Now, let's begin our little history lesson. If you are on this side or this side, I apologize. I'm going to be talking through it. You can hear it. If you take notes, you can write some of this stuff down. For those of you directly in front, I just want to put them on the board. It makes it a little bit easier. But I need to explain some concepts. Otherwise, the whole Old Testament seems closed to you. Let's open it up as well as this book. So we begin with this. If you remember, there are 12 tribes of Israel, but at some point they split. You remember that? As a matter of fact, 
The North, see if I can write that big enough so that some people can see it. The North is known by three names. If the Bible says the Northern Kingdom, you know who they're talking about. It also refers to it by the name Israel. Why? Because that's the majority. Israel, that was ten tribes. All right? But it's also known by another name. The capital city of that area, the most important city, was Samaria. So it was known as Samaria. If you read in the Old Testament a description of any one of these things, they mean the exact same thing. They mean the northern portion of Israel. Well, that means there's a southern portion. Who is known as the south, also known as Judah, also known as the capital city, Jerusalem. Okay? This is going to become very important in the story I'm about to tell you. Let me tell you how we got here. How we got to such a place of spiritual decline that God is willing to destroy Israel and knock them off the map and send them into captivity. What was so bad that would make God get that irritated? Well, it all begins back with a guy that threw a slingshot stone at a big giant. What was his name? Okay. So the greatest king of Israel's name was David. He had a son that was the wisest man in the world. What was his name? Solomon. And that's where our story begins. Solomon started out as a great kid. Started out, had a dad who made mistakes, but he was a good guy. As a matter of fact, God called David the apple of his eye, a man after his own heart. You remember that? God was really into David. So Solomon starts out, and he's a decent kid, but he had a problem. What was his problem? Women. You guys remember that? He had so many wives and got so mixed up in this business that it began to lead his heart astray. He began to intermarry with all these different nations, and he began to commit idolatry. He began to be um, polytheistic and worship all kinds of gods to such a degree that God got so irritated, he sent a prophet to talk to him. God said to him, he said, Solomon, you irritate me. I don't know if he said it exactly that way, but it was in Bible language. You irritateth me, I think is what it was. <laughs> he said, you irritate me because your father, David, walked with me. And I told you from the very get go, walk in obedience to me and things are going to go really well for you. But what have you done? What have you done with what I've given you? You're the, you're the most wise man in the world and you're out screwing around and everything is falling apart. For this reason, because you did not walk with me, I'm ripping the kingdom away from you. And I'm going to give it to your subordinates. Now that's an insult to a king because who is it supposed to pass to? His son, right? So he said, no, 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 I'm giving it to the subordinates. Well, needless to say, Solomon didn't care for that very much. Then God added one more thing. He said, but because I like your dad, not you, because I like your dad, I'm not going to take it away from you during your lifetime. I'll let you run a full gamut. Then I'll take it away from you when you die. That was promised to Solomon. Well, in Solomon's cabinet or in Solomon's uh, leadership, in his officials, there was one kid that was a hard worker, real eager guy, a great guy in his leadership by the name of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, who's later known as Jeroboam the first, merely because there's a Jeroboam the second. 
Jeroboam, son of Nebat. This guy is top dog. Now, everybody loves this guy. Everybody underneath Solomon says, man, I wonder if Jeroboam was our leader, how great he would be. And everybody starts kind of liking this guy, and he's a good guy to start with. So God sends a prophet to talk to him, and he tells him this. He said, I'm taking the kingdom away from Solomon, and I'm going to give it to you. I'll make a deal with you. If you walk with me, I will make you into a dynasty like that of David. Can you imagine a promise like that? So Jeremiah's thinking, sweet, sounds great to me. Well, problem is Solomon found out about it. How do you think Solomon found out about that little deal? Not so good. Goes out, sends guys to go kill him. He has to run out, flee down to Egypt and go into hiding. So he's off the page for a little while. Sure enough, in due time, Solomon dies and has a son with another dumb name. His name is Rehoboam. Why? I don't know. Apparently nobody knew how to name kids back then, all right? So he has a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the next successor to the throne, so he's about to be named king when all of a sudden Jeroboam hears about it. Wait a second, who's dead? I'm going home. He comes walking back into town and everybody's like, Jeroboam, where you been? He's like, well, I was in hiding. They're trying to kill me. Well, we want you to be leader. But this dumb kid, Rehoboam's going to be the king. I don't want him to be king. You be king. And Jeroboam says, all right, let's talk to him first. All the people gathered around Jeroboam. They love this guy. He walks up to Rehoboam and he says, hey, kid, I want to know something right now. I understand I have all the people's populist vote, but here's the deal. I will support you if you're a good man. Your dad was kind of a jerk, and he was mean to people. Will you be nice to people? If you're nice to people, we're all going to follow you. I will follow you. I'm not going to challenge your authority. I'll back you up, and everybody else will too. What's it going to be? Well, this guy's new at the king thing, so he starts saying, well, i got to go get some advisors. So he goes out to the older men of the city. Wise guys, right? They're real guys. They're good guys, all right? So he goes and he meets with the older guys of the city. And they said, Rehoboam, he's got all the power. This is a good deal. Man, be nice to the people. Your dad slipped. Don't make that same mistake. Be good to the people and they'll follow you. So he's new to this king thing. He says, I need a second opinion. So he grabs a bunch of young guys, guys his own age. And he says, hey, guys, what do you guys think? And they're like, what? Did he just challenge you? You need to show him who's boss. You're the king. He's not the king. You know what you need to do? You need to put the fear into everybody. What you need to do is if your dad was a jerk, you've got to be a super jerk. You've got to go out there and completely be like a tyrant. Oh, you've got to scare them all into servitude. And so he goes, that's a great idea. The only wise thing he did was send somebody else out to tell the people that. He sends another guy to go out and tell the people, and they stone him to death right there. Oops, that didn't go too well. Oh, guess who goes into hiding now? Rehoboam bails out, runs down south, and and hides down there. And he stirs up support of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. All right? He's down there. Jeroboam becomes the king of the northern portion, the other ten tribes, and the nation splits. You understand? That's exactly how it went down. As a matter of fact, God was so protecting this Jeroboam guy that Rehoboam down south got 180,000 warriors to go march and take back the throne. 
God sends a prophet out to meet him. They goes, hold on, guys. Hold on. Just got a word from God. God's running the Jeroboam thing. Go home. They all went home just like that. That's how much God was protecting this guy. But he couldn't leave it alone. He would not trust God at his word. God said, if you follow me, I'll make you into a dynasty. But we all know we can't believe God at his word. We all got to challenge him. We all got to test him. So sure enough, he tests God. Now, Jeroboam is king of Israel, top 12, top 10. Jeroboam becomes king of the south, which we're going to call Judah. Those two, right? Now, here's the problem. All of Israel worships in the holy city. What's the name of the holy city? Jerusalem. Where is it located? South. What's the problem with that? If you're king of the north, all your people are going south to worship? You think that's a good political move? No, he's completely paranoid. If everyone goes south and they're all hanging out in Rehoboam's territory, what if they like him better? What if they make him their king? What if this guy leads a coup and he takes me out? We can't allow this to happen. we got to come up with a plan. So he comes up with a brilliant plan involving golden cows. Here's his plan. I don't want him going down to Jerusalem to worship. That's the enemy's territory. I'm going to make an area of worship in Bethel and Dan, two places in the north, so people don't have to go down south. So he makes two enormous golden cows. You guys, how did the golden cow thing go last time? Pretty poorly, yeah? Apparently this guy was not a brilliant engineer, okay? He makes up these golden cows, and it leads the nation into idolatry. When he puts up the golden cows, he says, Behold, people, these are the gods that led you out of Egypt. Are you trying to make God mad? Is that what you're doing? From that point forward, for the next 40 kings, almost all the kings that followed him, it says, and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord like Jeroboam the first. He was the problem. Just like that, they spiraled into chaos. By the time we have arrived upon the scene, we're about 30 kings down, and they've gone to absolute decay. Does the economy look good? You bet. Does that matter? Nope. Sure doesn't. God will wipe them off the face of the earth. Meanwhile, the Assyrian Empire rises up, which will be God's force to destroy them. They have a leader by the name of Tiglath-Pileser. Don't name your child that. Because he's Tiglath-Pileser III. That means two other people were stupid enough to name their kid that. All right? This guy is the Assyrian king and ruler, and the Assyrians were a nasty bunch of people. As a matter of fact, there was two things they became known for. They not only became known for moving in enormous masses, like other armies, but they brought war machines. They had a corps of engineers that would go around and launch these war machines that were siege machines. They would build these elaborate contraptions, and they're hauling these things over, and they're taking over people and blowing things up. They were a tough nation. But more than all of that, they were known for psychological warfare. The Assyrians were the people that you've always heard about. That whenever they would kill someone, they would take their body and stick them up on a high stake, a big, tall, sharp stick, and they'd hang them everywhere. So you'd walk through a forest of dead bodies just to scare the living daylights out of anybody living. 
Then they would cut off all the heads and stick them in big piles, big piles of heads everywhere. Then anyone they had captive that was alive, they'd skin them alive. Then they would send one person free to run to the next town. What do you think they're going to say? You have no idea what's coming. The most horrifying, heinous thing is on its way. These people are bloodthirsty. They're savages. You've got to get out of here. And people would flee in front of them. You understand the psychological warfare? That's who's coming. They start moving in 743 B.C. westward. They begin to conquer the nations around Israel and they get closer and closer. We know now in history that 38 years after Amos spoke in the year 722 B.C., that same nation locks down and destroys the northern town, northern towns and the northern territory of Israel. All of that is waiting in the wings. And that's why God says this. He said, the Lord roars from Zion. That's a name for Jerusalem, the holy city. And thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, meaning the blessings are gone. And the top of Carmel, the lush northern part, withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, that's the capital of the Aramean Empire. Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because... She threshed Gilead, that's the Sea of Galilee area, with sledges having iron teeth. Therefore, I will send fire upon the house of Hazael, that's their king, that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad, that's his son. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon, meaning the valley of wickedness, and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden, which means house of pleasure. The people of Aram will go into exile back to Mesopotamia, to the city of Kerr, where they began, says the Lord. As a matter of fact, Tiglath-Pileser III, this guy, when he wiped out Damascus, he said, I took over 592 towns, and when I was done, it looked like a flood had gone through. This was prophesied. This came true. Why was God so mad at them? What was their sin? Sledging Gilead with iron teeth. What does that mean? A sledge is basically, if you pictured a big wooden raft looking thing, a flat, huge panel, very heavy, almost like a sled. And on the bottom had big, sharp iron spikes sticking down. You then haul it, either yourself or by an oxen or by a donkey, and you drag the heavy, heavy grading machine over the grain. It crushes it down and separates the wheat from the chaff. So by the time you're done with it, there's nothing but crushed stuff and the bad stuff blows away in the wind. He said, when you fought against Galilee, I understand warfare. I'm a God that knows war. I understand having a heavy hand, but you do not treat human beings the way you did. You fought unfairly. You did not check your passions. When you ran over them, you destroyed them. You destroyed innocence in the process. You destroyed them to the place where they're going to have a really hard time ever rebuilding. This was not just warfare. This was wrong. For that, I will take you off the map. Next one. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. 
Now his sights go southeast to the Philistine nations. They were called a Pentopolis, which means they had five cities that made up the nation of the Philistines. You guys remember who the Philistines are? Goliath, who David fought, was from the Philistine city of Gath. That's one of them. The other ones are Ekron, Ashkelon, um, Ashdod, and what's the other one? Gaza. All five of those, those make up the Philistine nations. He said to the Philistines, for three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because she took captive whole communities, meaning even the innocent, and sold them to Edom in slavery. I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza that consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines is dead says the sovereign Lord. You guys ever heard of the Gaza Strip? Still fighting over the same exact territory today. It's always been a hotbed. What's their sin? Inhumane slavery. He said, I understand prisoners of war. What I don't understand is why you're treating innocent people the way you are. You grab the whole community. That means kids. That means women. What is your problem? You don't treat your enemies that way. There are rules says this this is what the lord says for three sins of tyre even for four i will not turn back my wrath now we're at the northwest on the coast they were they had a mainland section and then an island no one could take their island they were slave traders they were a tough little guys and they were cocky about it because she sold whole communities of captives to edom disregarding a treaty of brotherhood Some believe that was an ancient treaty with Israel. Other people believe it was just common decency. I will send fire upon the walls of Tyre that consume her fortresses. Did the Assyrian Empire hit her hard? Yeah. But it wasn't until the 4th century that a man by the name of Alexander the Great came rolling in. You guys remember that name? Oh, he took Tyre and he took it good. He came in and he took over the mainland section. Well, they all went to the island. Well, no one could attack their island because he could defend it really well. So Alexander said, I'm not moving on until we take it. I'm not walking away. Tear down that city, that city, and that city. Drag all their rocks and rubble. Pour them all into the ocean. Build a land bridge and we'll attack them that way. Sure enough, he did. 30,000 of them he sold into slavery. Did Tyre get what was coming to him? You better believe it. There is no escaping judgment. He moves on. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Who is Edom? It's interesting. The 12 tribes of Israel, his name was also what? Jacob. Jacob had a twin brother named Esau. That's the Edomites. They've always hated Israel. Because who was the nasty deceiver kid? Jacob. Right? But he's the promise line. So Esau, all his family, has hated his brother since day one. And all he taught his children to hate. And they taught their children to hate. And they taught their children to hate. And there's been a war continually. The Edomites and the Israelis were fighting all the time. Here was their sin. Because he pursued his brother with a sword, meaning Israel, stifling all compassion. Because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. 
I will send fire upon Taman that will consume the forces of Basra, their key cities. By the way, in the 5th century, they were totally annihilated by the Nabataeans, and they no longer exist. What was their sin? Hating and hating and hating and never having compassion. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Who is the Ammonites? You guys remember that the king, the father of all Jews, his name is Abraham. He had a nephew named Lot. Remember the guy whose wife turned into a pillar of salt? You remember that story? Sodom and Gomorrah guy? He ended up committing incest with his two daughters. One had a child named Ammon, the other one had a child named Moab. Therefore came the Ammonites and the Moabites that fought against the Israelis over and over. This is the first. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of the capital, Rabbah, that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. In other words, you tore open pregnant women? We don't do that. That's not okay. That's not what we're going to be doing in warfare. I don't care if they're your enemies or not. There are rules. Last one. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, that's his brother, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire upon Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. I'm sorry, what's the sin? You burned a dead king's bones. So what? Okay, here's the thing. Let me, let me kind of give kind of my opinion on some of this stuff. You guys remember the Abu Ghraib situation? You guys remember that? Where we had some POWs, some prisoners of war, and some of our military were making fun of them. Do you remember that? We were treating them horribly. They were riding them like dogs, and they had the leashes around their neck, and they were tearing up the Torah, and they are throwing it in the toilet. Do you remember that? My first reaction to that was not very godly. My first reaction was... You guys were in war. All bets are off. Who cares? That literally was my reaction. Okay, that's not Jesus, right? That was my reaction. I remember reading it going, you guys, when you're a prisoner of war and you've been trying to kill somebody else, you're probably not going to expect great treatment. And they could have really hurt them, but they were just making fun of them. Is that big of a deal? Oh, yeah, that's a big deal. Because I'm the guy who I remember reading about the Revolutionary War with the Redcoats. You remember these guys? The redcoats would all march, and out of honor, they would all march in line. And they're wearing red, okay? How stupid do you have to be to go through a forest in red? Everyone can see you. Just aim for the red targets, all right? And I've always been irritated. I'm like, what are you doing? And then when they would fire, they'd all go, all right, guys, line up. Okay, if I'm a bad shot, I may be aiming at you, but I'm going to hit your buddy three guys down. If you're all lined up in one big thing, and you're all going, pow, reload. You know what I mean? I was just going, you're just dumb. You don't fight very well. You deserve to die. That's your problem. Okay? I mean, I really have no, I'm much more into the guerrilla warfare, run around in the trees and start shooting people, right? That was kind of my thing. 
So I'm looking at all this and going, what do you mean rules and warfare? It's warfare. They're trying to kill you. You're trying to kill them. I want you to see God's view on this. God's view on this. What did they just do? Here's their sin that God got so mad at. They stormed into Edom's territory. One bad guy was being mean to another bad guy. You seem to not care. God cares. They storm in and they dig out, desecrate the cemetery of their king. They pull out his bones on public display and burn them in front of everybody. Now you would go, that's not a big deal. In their culture, it was. In their culture, they were superstitious. Whether it's real or not doesn't matter. The point is, they believed that for their king, who they loved more than anything else, their king, who they honored more than anyone else, they had to take care of him in the afterlife. So they had to take care of his bones. They had to take care of his grave. They had to make everything perfect for as long as their nation existed. If anything bad happened, they were held accountable. So what did this other nation do? They went in with no benefit to themselves and demoralized the enemy. For no reason but just to be mean. And God said, no, we don't do that. God cares how you treat your enemies. And God's going to hold you accountable as to how you treat your enemies. You want to know how much so? Do you want to know what we are called to do for our enemies? Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. It's page 804. In the Bibles that are handed to you, I think, 804, 807, something like that. It's Romans chapter 12, verse 17. I want you to see God's word in relation to enemies. Because no, we can't do whatever we want. No, we cannot destroy our enemies in our minds and feel better about it and run revenge scenarios and think of all the manners of ways that we would torture them if we had the possibility. Because isn't that Christians look great on the outside, but inside, nobody will ever know. Here's the first thing I see. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do you understand what that says? It says that what they did was evil. No one's excusing their behavior. You have an enemy because they did something wrong. No one's telling you that it's not wrong. It is wrong. God's not trying to tell you that it's not wrong. But his point is, even though they were evil, that doesn't mean you have to be evil. Because when God looks at the ledger, he's going to look only at your side, not what caused it. How are you acting? Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. Remember, nobody gets away with anything, says the Lord. On the contrary, and welcome to the year of world impact. When we reach out, think of this verse right here. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's the thing. The first thing Satan wants to do is to harm you and to terrorize you. The second thing he wants to do is turn you into an abuser. You understand? 
Not only does he want to harm you, but he wants you to react back in a negative way. Because then he wins you both. We mustn't allow Satan to win. What they did was evil, but that doesn't mean we stoop to their level. I know what they did was horrible, but that doesn't mean you slay them with your mind. I know what they did was evil, but that doesn't mean you become that way in reaction. You guys, the I have neighbors on the right side of me. As I'm looking out my doorway, there's neighbors on the right side of me. Those neighbors now, it's a Filipino family. Right before that was a Palestinian family. I'm out washing my car one day, and we get into a discussion. This gentleman begins to talk to me because he just came over from the Israel area. He said, my uncles, they all got ran off by the Israelis. They had been living in that house all their lives. They bought it with their own money. They had everything there, and the Israelis ran them out. They chased them. They took all their stuff. They stole all their stuff. And he began to relate why he hates the Israelites as a Palestinian. Well, of course, I know the other side of the story, right? That the Israelites had all their stuff, they had rights to the land, and the Palestinians have come in and stolen all their stuff and damaged them and moved them out of their land. Here's the problem. Both sides are training their children to hate and hate and hate and hate and hate. Is that honoring? You see, God has a problem with that. When you even start infecting other people in your family with hatred that they don't even need to own, it's wrong. At some point, Jesus wants to break the cycle. At some point, Jesus has to get in the mix. At some point, the abuse has to stop. How? I have no idea. That's a Holy Spirit thing. But in your own heart, it matters how you treat your enemies. I'm not excusing them. I'm telling you that you're a Christian. I'm not telling you what they did was right. But I'm telling you that you are accountable for your behavior. And if you want to constantly say, but they... I know what they did. What did you do? That's what really matters. And at what point... Do we begin to set the captives free? At what point do we stand for truth and healing and compassion? In this year of outreach, in this year of world impact, in this year of doing stuff, we even have to be kind to our enemies, whoever they may be. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for a challenge for giving us an eye-opening lesson that this stuff does matter to you, Lord. That no, we can't do whatever we want. No, people aren't different just because we've deemed them enemies. That, Lord, you even hold the bad guys accountable for how they treat the bad guys. That, Lord, inhumane treatment is unacceptable in your sight. May we not be party to it, that even when we feel justified, may we stand up for righteousness and stand up for healing and stand up for compassion. Lord, would you change our hearts from the inside out that we might be people pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.